Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 96, Defining Apple. I am Neil. For the past few episodes, we have been focused on the product. Earlier this month, we talked about the iPad. Apple is becoming much more aggressive with iPad. This is a management team that wants to see the iPad return to growth. Last episode, we looked at the Mac. Apple is rethinking its strategy for pro Mac hardware. I think this is going to become much more complicated for Apple than people are thinking. I actually think the Mac is going to become a major headache for management. In today's episode, we are going to focus more on Apple, the company. We know Apple is interested in new industries, but where exactly is Apple headed next? And how does Apple think about those new industries? The answers to some of those questions is found by trying to define Apple. How does Apple view itself and the role it has to play in the world? Upon closer examination, I don't think Apple is a tech company. Instead, Apple is a design company, betting that consumers want something more than just technology in their life. The best place to begin is to look at how people have defined Apple in the past. Apple has been receiving a lot of different labels. Some of these labels are found in Silicon Valley. Others are found on Wall Street. We have Apple being called everything from a computer company, a tech company, product company, even a Mac, iPod, or iPhone company. Lately, we have Apple being referred to as a luxury retailer, a luxury brand, a consumer staples company. Some of those labels are more valid than others. We see that a couple of them are trying to represent Apple's product line. Others are trying to represent Apple's relationship with its customers. And then you have a few that are trying to correctly categorize Apple's culture or philosophy. Back in January 2007, this is when Apple unveiled the iPhone and Apple TV. Steve Jobs announced that Apple would be changing its name. It would no longer be known as Apple Computer. Instead, it would just be Apple Incorporated. And people looked at that announcement as a sign that this management team now viewed Apple more like a consumer electronics company or maybe an iPhone company. In a weird way, it seemed like Apple themselves was trying to give the company a different label. In reality, I don't think the corporate name change told us too much about how to best define Apple. Instead, three years later, in 2010, when Apple unveiled the iPad, I think we got our first really good clue as to how to start thinking about what really drives Apple. How does Apple view its role in the world? It was courtesy of Steve Jobs and occurred at the end of the keynote when he was talking about what let Apple make a product like the iPad. Now, this quote that I'm going to say, it's a couple sentences long. I don't want to chop it up. So we're just going to go over it in its entirety. So here's Steve Jobs. The reason that Apple is able to create products like the iPad is because we've always tried to be at the intersection of technology and liberal arts, to be able to get the best of both, to make extremely advanced products from a technology point of view, but also have them be intuitive, easy to use, fun to use, so that they really fit the user's and users don't have to come to them. They come to the user. 
And it's the combination of these two things that I think let us make the kind of creative products like the iPad. So that was Steve Jobs in 2010. What's interesting about that is that I think it does a great job at explaining why competitors had such a difficult time competing against the iPad. We can even argue that that's still the case today. We then look at the Apple Watch. I think the same exact thing is happening. There are competitors who do not understand why people are buying Apple Watches. This past week actually marked the second anniversary of Apple beginning to sell the Apple Watch. If we take Apple's comments about being at the intersection of technology and liberal arts, I think that serves as a good foundation for beginning to look at other clues found within Apple's business for how to best define this company. The first clue is when you look at Apple's power structure. This was the topic for episode 88 earlier this year, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I just want to kind of go over the main points. If you want more details, go back to the episode called Grading Tim Cook. In the late 1990s, Steve Jobs shifted the power structure within Apple. The end result was designers had control and influence over engineers. It was the other way around before that point. This is a very big deal. It caused a lot of issues within Apple, as one would expect. The engineers were not happy. There was significant turnover. The reason Steve Jobs did this, and also why Johnny Ive went along with this and supported this move, was that they believed design is the item that leads to great products. The iMac was the first product born on this new power structure in the late 1990s. Ever since then, we've had Apple be a design-led company. Well, since becoming CEO in 2011, I think Tim Cook has actually doubled down on this leadership and power structure. If you take a look at all of the changes he's made to his executive team, it all amounts to really giving more power to Apple designers. When you look at Apple leadership, I think there's two groups. One is focused on operations and corporate strategy. The other is focused on product. If you take a closer look at that product group, it's the industrial designers. That's the group that oversees Apple's product strategy. What does that actually mean, oversee Apple's product strategy? Well, we got a pretty good indicator from Christopher Stringer. So this is a veteran Apple industrial designer, and he was part of the Apple-Samsung trial a few years ago. It recently was reported that Christopher Stringer is going to leave the industrial design group, which is a pretty big deal. But Stringer explained the job of an Apple industrial designer. And that was to imagine objects that don't exist and to guide the process that brings them to life. That's what it means to oversee product strategy. And so by splitting leadership into two groups, operations, corporate strategy on one side, product on the other, I don't think that resembles a tech company. Instead, I think it ends up giving more power to industrial designers. I think they have consolidated power during the Tim Cook era. It's pretty rare in Silicon Valley. The next major clue is found when you look at the organizational structure. 
Now, one can look at how Apple's doubling down in design and conclude that there's got to be friction somewhere within Apple because of this. And I think that is true. I think that there are cracks starting to form elsewhere within Apple. That's to be expected. You have certain groups that are losing influence or sway with management. But I don't think there's any evidence that the broader culture at Apple is beginning to be jeopardized. And I think part of that is due to the company's functional organizational structure. The whole reason to have that structure is to keep the focus on the product. If we take Apple's leadership structure, and I have a diagram that depicts all of this over at AboveAvalon.com. Just go to the main article, Apple isn't a tech company. If you take a look at Apple's leadership structure and rearrange a few things, I think we get a different look at Apple. The company contains two pieces. You have a design studio, and then you have a technology arm attached to the design studio. So by leading or managing the industrial design group, Richard Haworth isn't just overseeing 17 industrial designers. He is managing Apple's in-house design studio. So this is the core group of designers at Apple, even when you include the human interface team. That is very different than your typical tech company that could have hundreds of designers. However, it would be incorrect to just say Apple is a design studio, because I don't think that's true. Instead, you need to recognize the technology piece. I call it a technology arm. You can come up with a different term for it. But it's the part of Apple that develops all of these technologies that actually power the products created by the industrial design group. I don't want to make it seem like these two entities are so separate and so distinct that they're kind of doing their own thing, because that's not true. Instead, there is a significant amount of collaboration going on between designers and engineers, marketers, people in Apple retail. The list goes on. You have so many ideas being passed between groups. This is one reason why Apple came up with a circular building for Apple Park. The main clue in thinking of Apple as a design studio with an accompanying technology arm is that Apple isn't just selling technology. Technology is not the product. Instead, technology is a piece of the product. There's something more to technology. The next major clue as to how best to define Apple is found with storytelling. How does Apple management tell Apple's story through the press? There were three recent articles and interviews that really jumped out at me as being extremely important. The first was in February 2015. It was the Johnny Ive profile in The New Yorker. This was a 16,000-word profile. It was a very big deal. And the reason why I thought it was so important is that Ian Parker over at The New Yorker, he used the Apple Watch as a way to show that today's Apple is Johnny's Apple. An industrial designer was leading Apple's product strategy. I would go further and say that that article confirmed that Johnny now had the role formerly held by Steve Jobs. It was a very big deal, and I'll include a link to that profile in the show notes. The next thing that stood out to me was in December 2015, Charlie Rose got an exclusive look inside Apple. 
This was part of his 60 Minutes report. And so for the first time, we got to see inside one of Apple's Monday morning meetings. So this is when Apple executives get together and go over every single piece of Apple's business. This occurs every week. They look at sales, what's doing well, what's not doing well. They talk about strategy. Of course, Charlie Rose didn't sit through the entire meeting. But nevertheless, I thought it was interesting seeing inside the room. But the thing that really caught my attention was how we got the first genuine look inside Apple's industrial design studio. Now, in the past, we've gotten a few photos from inside the studio, so we kind of had an idea of what it looked like. But nothing compared to Charlie Rose's access. At one point, Rose was talking to Johnny about how few people get to see this room. And Johnny, in a laughing manner, said, we don't like people in this room, period. And that's very true. There are stories of Apple executives not being able to have access to this room. Now, of course, this raises a very interesting question. Why was Charlie Rose and his entire 60 Minutes entourage in the room if Apple was so careful to keep it secret, keep it guarded? Well, I think it, there's a rather simple answer. I think Apple gave Rose such extreme access because they felt letting people see the design studio would help Apple explain themselves to the world. They wanted people to know what goes into some of these products. It's important to note that this is very different than, say, the Apple from 15 years ago. That Apple wouldn't want you to know that Apple came up with 15 different iPhone sizes and they picked this particular one and that they have this and they're working on this and they're doing... They had no interest in doing that. Now, are there pros and cons associated with being so open about some of the design process, some of the product development? I think there are. But I think the broader point here is that Apple was trying to say to the world, we're not just about technology. There's something else that we care about. That idea really came through in a subsequent interview that Charlie Rose had with Johnny Ive. It was a 72-minute interview. It was aired in March 2016, but it looked like it was taped in September 2015. And the whole point of the interview was to try to figure out what drives Apple. Johnny went into detail as to how products are developed at Apple. He also discussed a lot of his design philosophies. It's one of those interviews that you sort of have to listen to a couple times to really get everything that's being discussed. So in each one of those examples, the New Yorker profile, the exclusive look inside the design studio, and also the Johnny Ive profile, Apple had one goal in mind. That was to shape its public image. They were very similar in that regard. This takes us to the last major clue for how best to define Apple. The product line. Back at the end of March, Apple unveiled a number of new products through a series of press releases. This is where we had the new iPad changes, we had the red iPhone 7, 7 Plus, a new storage configuration for iPhone SE. The most intriguing new product, though, Apple Watch Bands. We had new woven nylon, new classic buckle, Hermes, sport band. Basically, Apple unveiled. It's spring 
2017 watch band collection. The reason why watch bands are so intriguing to me is that they remain a source of mockery within some Apple user circles, yet they're so incredibly important for Apple. I think Apple watch bands are the primary reason Apple has been able to sell close to 25 million Apple watches to date. Apple has become the wearables leader partly because of Apple watch bands. It's one thing to have a small screen positioned on the top of one's wrist. We've talked about this time and time again. There's value and convenience to have that small screen on the top of your wrist. But I think the only reason why people are willing to wear that screen in the first place is because of watch bands. It is not a coincidence that Apple watch bands are the most frequently updated product at Apple. That may sound a bit crazy when you think about it, but they're that important. But look at watch bands for a second. Here you have Apple shipping a product that isn't powered by any software or technology. This is a product instead that's primarily judged on features and items that are found more in the fashion world than Silicon Valley. So I think Apple Watch Bands are a major clue for the kind of company that Apple's trying to be. It's not just a tech company, that's for sure. Then we could go back to episode 95 two weeks ago when we talked about the Mac. I think the Mac business provides a big clue for how best to define Apple. One thing that you see with the Mac is that this is a product that is changing because we are living in an iOS world. The Mac used to be targeted to the liberal arts mindset. Now it's starting to appeal more to engineering. I don't think it's a coincidence that that transition coincides with the Mac becoming a much bigger headache for management. Look at what Apple did with the iPad. You had an item that was a byproduct of technology becoming more personal. This is another way of saying it was a product that was born at the intersection of technology and liberal arts. So whenever I say technology becomes more personal, it's another way of saying we are able to get more out of technology without having technology take over our life. When Apple tries to do the same thing with the Mac, they receive pushback from a certain segment of the Mac user base. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Instead, I think the struggles Apple's having with the Mac tell us this is not just a tech company. There is another variable at play here. So if we add all of these clues together, they contain a similarity. They all revolve around some element of design. The first thing, Apple is a company in which designers hold the most power and influence. In terms of structure, Apple is structured to position the product above anything else. Apple management is eager to use design to tell its story. And then when you look at Apple's product line, it embodies the principle of technology not being enough. We can even look at the invitation for WWDC 2017. This is Apple's most tech-focused event of the year. The very first sentence 
on that invite, technology alone is not enough. That's a pretty powerful statement. Take all those clues, put them together. Apple isn't a tech company. Instead, Apple is a design company. How does one define design? It's one of those terms that really does have quite a few meanings. Most people, when they hear the word design, they probably think of a designer sitting down, sketching something, drawing something, making something. They think of the appearance. I don't think of design like that. I look at design as the way we use products. And so when I define Apple as a design company, what that means is that Apple is positioning the user experience, the way consumers interact with technology, as more important than just focusing on technology. And I think this goal, it's not just found with industrial designers, it's found throughout Apple. It's not just a design studio, it's also that technology arm. Everyone at Apple participates in this. Apple is betting that design is the ingredient that will continue to put the product above anything else. That means whether you're in engineering, marketing, retail, product design, industrial design, you're all focused on the user experience. There is a way to differentiate a design company from a tech company. You need to observe how the company approaches technology. This is where we begin to get clues as to how Apple's thinking about new industries and where Apple's headed going forward. Apple doesn't view core technologies as products themselves. Instead, core technologies are ingredients for something else. They are the ingredients that power devices. So instead of chasing what is ultimately just raw capability found with technology, Apple's more interested in functionality when it relates to the user experience. This is another reference to the technology and liberal arts intersection. So here's a couple examples that we could go through. The first is augmented reality. We know that Apple has been thinking a lot about augmented reality over the past few years. So you look at R&D, M&A, it is clear that this is a company that's betting significantly on augmented reality being a big part of our products going forward. Now, instead of being like a tech company and positioning augmented reality as the product, I think Apple's focus is going to be taking augmented reality and incorporating it into the products we already use, such as iPhones and iPads. In the future, we'll get new wearable form factors that are powered by augmented reality. So augmented reality is viewed as a core technology that transforms products into new navigation tools. You can see how augmented reality, the technology, is just part of something bigger. Instead, Apple's focus on how we're going to interact with augmented reality. I actually think that's one of the most critical aspects of this technology, and very few people even talk about it today. The next topic, autonomous driving. So we see Apple beginning to test 
autonomous driving technology on California public roads. They were recently granted a permit. It sure seems like everyone assumes that Apple just wants to work on that core technology. That's it. That's going to be the product. They'll then partner with other car makers. I disagree. Apple still wants to design its own car. The reason is autonomous driving will be the core ingredient powering a range of Apple products in the transportation space. Apple cares about the user experience. Autonomous driving will just play one part of that experience. It's a mistake to go off of some of these press reports that ultimately are just snapshots of Project Titan. They're not capturing Project Titan's long-term trajectory or goals. They're not capturing Apple's motivation. Apple is going to want to control the entire user experience. We could turn to health monitoring. Once again, why are Apple Watch bands so important? Why are they the most frequently updated product in Apple's line? Well, the best way to get people to wear health monitoring technology is to have people want to wear health monitoring technology. We shouldn't look at Apple Watch today in terms of, say, a heart rate monitor on the top of our wrist and conclude, well, that's the extent of health monitoring technology. It's not. Now, granted that there are significant barriers when you talk about this technology going forward. This is not easy. A recent report, I believe it was from CNBC, went over some of this. A lot of money, a lot of people have been focused on this issue and what you're trying to improve health monitoring without going down the road of invasive surgery or other types of monitoring devices. The point is, what Apple is trying to do is position health monitoring as a core technology that will eventually power a range of wearable devices. I don't think it's just going to be Apple Watch. It probably will also include wireless earpods for the ears. Voice. A tech company looks at voice and these voice assistants as the primary product. Accordingly, the goal would be to get as many standalone speakers and microphones positioned throughout your house. The point is to get you to use the voice assistant as much as possible. Apple approaches voice very differently. Apple looks at voice as having a different role in computing. Instead of being the product itself, Apple looks at voice as being a piece of the overall experience found with using our current devices, iPhones, iPads, Macs, Apple Watches, AirPods. So going forward, I think the key situation or the key question surrounding voice is how will it make technology more manageable? This is ultimately one of my major issues with Amazon Echo, because I don't think it makes technology more manageable. I think it makes it more complicated. The last example is found with television, and this is actually a counterexample, where if Apple doesn't have enough core technology to power a product, the company says no to it. It keeps it in the labs. So a few years ago, according to reports, Apple said no to coming up to its own television set because it wasn't able to figure out a way to differentiate itself from the competition. Okay, well, what does that even mean, though? <laughs> I 
I think what Apple ran into was they realized there was little found with a television set that could lead to a new experience. Think about a television set. It's a stationary large piece of glass. You position it a few feet in front of us. Most likely, we're probably going to be looking at our iPhones or iPads when we sit in front of these television sets. Now, sure, Apple can add some new technology, a few front-facing cameras, some new sensors. I don't think that's going to be compelling enough. Instead, what Apple did was focus on the piece of the television experience that we actually do interact with, the remote control, the user interface. I think going forward, those are probably going to be the two pieces to keep an eye on in terms of television. That Apple TV box, there could be some things that Apple does with that going forward, where they revamp it, and they do start to include a little bit more of Siri into the television experience. You don't really need to rethink the television screen, though. You don't need to come out with a brand new 65-inch television screen. Of course, we have to consider that Apple is selling television sets today. They're just not called television sets. They're called iPhones and iPads. In 2016, Apple sold 255 million of those quote-unquote television sets. Before we wrap up today's episode, the last piece of this discussion deals with criticism. Much of the criticism that's directed at Apple can be traced back to how the company is defined. So here's a little thought experiment if you're listening to this episode in your home, office, in your car, on the bus, on the subway, on an airplane, (laughs) wherever you're listening to this. Think about some of the criticism that's facing Apple. So this could be a complaint that a lot of people have or that a few people have, but that may be reoccurring every year or every quarter. This could involve hardware, software, services. The chances are very good that you can take that criticism and put it in two buckets. In one bucket, you have criticism that's born from Apple not being a tech company. So this is the complaint that Apple won't be able to grasp future technology waves. They won't be able to figure out services. They won't be able to figure out machine learning, artificial intelligence, voice interfaces, any of that. Because they're not a technology company, they're going to be at a disadvantage to the competition. Pretty much all of that criticism, it comes down to Apple focusing too much on functionality and not enough on capability. So Apple's focusing too much on how we use the technology and not enough on what the technology can do. There's other types of criticism, though. And this is the other bucket. I think Apple receives pushback from being a design company. When you look at all of the backlash that Apple is facing concerning pro Mac hardware, a lot of this backlash is just coming from a very small portion of the pro Mac user base. A lot of it boils down to a broader dissatisfaction with the company betting too much on design. Again, that doesn't deal with what a Mac looks like. It deals with how we use a Mac. This isn't to say that by being a design company, Apple doesn't face any risk, any challenges, any downsides. 
But when we look at the items that can really mess up Apple, the items that can actually jeopardize this company's future, I think they're all related. And I think they're all found with if Apple becomes a tech company. If that occurs, if Apple begins to bet on capability, what technology can do, and not on functionality, how we use that technology, that's a problem. This is another way of saying, if Apple finds itself moving away from being a design-led company, I think the product is put into jeopardy. This is exactly why I'm starting to see a couple of red flags beginning to appear in the Mac business. Because the criticism that's being pointed at Apple, it's beginning to take the tone of Apple needs to focus more on capability and not on functionality. That's a very tricky proposition for Apple to do. We conclude with the surprise product of 2016, and that is the $199 design book. If you recall the reaction to that product, it was quite remarkable. Most people saying that this was the top of Apple design, that this was a clear problem. This was an indicator of Apple designers getting intoxicated on memories, and the criticism was, was everywhere. I looked at the book very differently. I actually think that design book was the clearest expression of what makes Apple a design company. Apple is focused on creating products that can change the world. This raises an interesting question. Doesn't that mean Apple is actually a product company? Why would it be called a design company instead? The primary difference is I don't think being called a product company goes far enough. I don't think being defined as a product company explains Apple's approach to technology. Instead, when you refer to Apple as a design company, you are implying that Apple is focused on using technology to improve the overall user experience. You're implying that there is something more than just technology that's needed in these products. You're implying that Apple's goal is to place a bet that technology alone is not enough. That's why Apple is best defined as a design company. That's going to do it for today's episode. In a few days, Apple is going to report second quarter 2017 earnings. If you want to get prepared for the earnings report, I published my earnings preview earlier this week. It was sent out to above Avalon members. There were a number of parts. I set the scene heading into earnings. What are the expectations facing Apple the stock? We also went over my iPhone estimate, iPad, Apple Watch, Mac services estimate. We also discussed management's 3Q17 guidance. So what do I think Apple's going to guide for the next quarter? And also the capital management changes. Apple will announce a change to its dividend and capital management program. So I discussed not just the numbers, not just the estimates, but my thought process heading into earnings season. Once Apple reports earnings on Tuesday, May 2nd, I will then send out all of my reactions to the earnings report to above Avalon members. So that's usually the major themes, good, bad, concerning, surprising, and also all of the details that I got from the earnings report, my earnings model, and the conference call. 
If you're currently an Above Avalon member, you can check your email for the preview and you will automatically get my earnings reaction emails. If you're not an Above Avalon member and you're interested in signing up, you can head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. Sign up is very easy. There is an archive available, so you can go back, read the earnings preview, get all set for earnings, and then you're all set to receive my earnings reaction emails in the days following Apple's earnings. So you have everything in one spot. The cornerstone of Above Avalon membership is access to the exclusive Above Avalon daily email. So this is a 2,000-word email that covers two to three stories, 10 to 12 stories per week. You can think of it as this podcast focuses on one Apple topic each time, where we talk about 10 to 12 different topics throughout the week. If you enjoy the Apple analysis found in this podcast or in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com, I think you would really enjoy becoming a member and receiving that daily email. Membership is either $10 per month or $100 per year. Above Avalon is 100% supported by its members. So thank you if you're already a member, and also thank you if you're thinking about becoming an Above Avalon member. That will conclude today's episode. If you like the Above Avalon podcast, if you can leave a review or rating in iTunes, if you listen to this in Overcast, if you could recommend this episode, and of course, if you want to share this episode on your favorite curated version of the web, also known as Twitter or Facebook, I'm not going to stop you. (laughs) Thank you in advance for letting people know about the Above Avalon podcast. I'll talk to you all next week. Bye.